Well, to be continued are three of the most exciting and frustrating words at the end of a movie or a television show, and we've all seen it. The story is gripping. It is intense, and you're sucked into the story, and you're unsure of how it's going to end, and just when you think you're going to find out and everything is going to be resolved, to be continued, comes on the screen. And now you're thinking, great. Now I've got to wait and see what happens. And we are terrible at waiting. And the dawn of digital streaming services really hasn't helped at all because the streaming services may not have the sequels or the next season might be months, if not years away. They might leave the season on a cliffhanger. Either way, you're invested on it. And you might think that, uh, that it ends on a really great note and that it's a, a very satisfying ending. And, uh, but before they roll the credits, or perhaps it's like, a, like an Avengers movie and there's this post-credits teaser that you sort of figure out, oh, this is not the end of the story. There's going to be more and you have to go back and see it. There's, there's someone lurking in the corner that we hadn't, uh, hadn't yet seen before. And now you have to wait. Or maybe you're watching a movie and at the end the bad guy wins. And you're like, this is a terrible story. This isn't how stories are supposed to end. The bad guy never wins. But it says to be continued. And it becomes a phrase of hope that the bad guy doesn't get the last laugh. That uh, there's some hope at the end of the story. There's some hope that the good guy will actually end up prevailing in the end. Our lives often feel like a, a stream or a series of to-be-continueds. Our story keeps going on. Sometimes there might be closure to seasons or events in our lives, uh, but for the most part, the, the events and the days in our lives just sort of meld together of, of what is the next thing to come, what is the to-be-continued, and we live in that tension Every single day, the joys of life can sometimes mold into disappointments. Uh, tragedy can plant seeds for future beauty. And sometimes we have no idea why any of this is happening. And it is just a, a frustrating to be continued. And for those of us who are Christians, we know the end. We know that Christ is going to come back. We know that he is the ultimate victor, but in the interim between uh, now and then, we often get confused about how we should live or how we should think about our to-be-continueds. And so, how to live in the to-be-continued is what our passage helps us with today. And before we dig in, there are a few things that, uh, that, we need to be, that need to be sort of aired out before we really get into the nitty-gritty here. Mark 13 is arguably one of the most difficult chapters in all of the New Testament to, to figure out what is happening here. How to understand it, interpret it, and apply it. Historically, the interpretations are very diverse. There are a lot of ways that people have thought about this, but the application remains somewhat steady. And so I want to be clear that as I come to this message and, and next week's, that I come with an open hand and I come with an open heart. I could be wrong with what Jesus is um, 
uh, going about here. Um, I could be wrong in how I understand it, but I think its application is, is fairly universal. And, and part of what I think is happening here is why I have divided uh, this chapter into two. It's sort of uh, uh, cut off right in the middle. Uh, in the verses that we're covering today, in verses uh, 1 through 23, I believe that Jesus is uh, is referring to and, and referring to and preparing the disciples for events that are going to happen in their particular life after he is gone. And so on our verses today, they're looking forward to those, but we are now looking back on the history books and seeing how these have come about. And next week in verses 24 through 27, it seems as if Jesus is dealing more so with the end of uh, end of the age, and so we'll be covering that next week. So in our passage today, you and I have received the to-be-continued message flashed before our stories. It's part of who we are, and uh, uh, we feel its tension, it's uncomfortable, it's discouraging, it's hopeful, and we need to live in wisdom to understand how to apply it. So let's read the passage, and then we will... Um, We'll work on it uh, together. This is what Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 13, starting in verse 1. As he, being Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, and all will be thrown down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying that I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand about what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother, uh, to, um, will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not, uh, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant woman and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that it won't happen in winter, for those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would have been saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here's the Messiah, see there, 
Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. So, in the opening verses of this particular text, Jesus, um, uh, the, 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 the to-be-continued message is in our face here. It is in 300-point font. It is bold. It is italicized. It is, it is underlined. It gets our attention. And so, we must face it. And how do we do that? First, we do that with open hands. Open your hands. If we want to live well in the, the to-be-continued, then we have to live with an open hand. And what that means is that though we should put a value on things, we shouldn't think of them as most important. We shouldn't have such a tight grip on the things of this world that we fail to take hold of eternity. Jesus had just gotten done teaching in the temple, and now as his disciples are walking out, he again teaches them another lesson, this time about how to live. Look in verse 1. And he was going out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive buildings, what, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. You know, about 20 years ago, I, I got the opportunity to go to uh, Paris, France. And uh, when I first got there and started exploring, two things amazed me. First was how dirty of a city Paris really is. Um, you know, if, if you see on movies and if you see in uh, pictures or whatever, these picturesque uh, streets of France being, you know, just absolutely beautiful. Don't believe it. It's photoshopped or it's in a studio. France is loaded with garbage. Uh, it, it, there's homeless people everywhere. There's pickpocketers all over the place. There's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of people. It, uh, it's not sanitary, uh, sanitary or picturesque in any sort of way. Um, but in light of what I just said about Paris, it is an absolutely stunning city. Uh, there's so much beauty in there. The Eiffel Tower is quite impressive. The Arc de Triomphe is, uh, is amazing. Uh, there's this beautiful church that, that sits on top of a hill called the Sacre Coeur, which is the Sacred Heart, that overlooks the, the entire city of, of Paris. Uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral, which is currently being rebuilt and you can't really visit right now, uh, was absolutely breathtaking. I even got the opportunity to sing inside uh, with a choir in, in there, and uh, it, it's just amazing. Where else are you going to go to see the actual Mona Lisa, or the actual Liberty Leading the People, or the Wedding Feast at Cana, except for the Louvre Museum? Uh, there's so much beauty in that city that it's easy to understand the disciples' sentiment here with, oh, wow, look at these great stones. Look at these these impressive buildings out here. The temple in Jerusalem would have been quite impressive itself. The, the, the sheer size of it would have been impressive and intimidating. It sat on 35 acres of land. It was 150 feet tall. The circumference of the pillars were so wide that, that three men, fingertip to fingertip, couldn't even get around one uh, one of those, those, those pillars. Some of the individual stones themselves were 60 feet long, uh, 11 feet high, and 8 feet deep, weighing more than a million pounds. 
The exterior of the eastern front of the temple was, uh, was gold-plated. So when the sun would rise in the morning, it would, it would hit those gold plates. It would be so bright against the, the morning sunlight that it would almost be uh, blinding. And with such beauty in the world, it is really easy to take our eyes off of the fact that we are promised something better. These things are good. But God has so much more in store for us. And so Jesus offers a corrective in verse 2. Jesus said to him, Do you see all those great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, and all will be thrown down. In, in essence, notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, guys, look, these buildings are great. But let me tell you something. There's going to be a day when all these beautiful things that you see out here are going to be a pile of rubble. And rubble isn't beautiful. And so we should, we can, we can value these things. God gave us things on this earth to enjoy, to invoke thankfulness and gratitude to, to him and his, his goodness. But there's coming a day when the Mona Lisa will be gone. In 1990, there was, there was an art heist at the Gardner Museum in Boston where thieves didn't just break in and take the paintings off the wall and run off without them. They took them off the wall, took out knives, scratched them out of the frames, rolled them up, and stole them. They still haven't been found, but they were ruined even if they were. These great things of beauty that we see here in this world are one day going to be gone. Beauty is here for a time to soak in, but don't get too attached. There's something better coming. So we need to have an open hand. But notice second that we need to open our eyes. We need to open our eyes. Now, I'm not sure if it's this way or not anymore, but when I was growing up, um, commercials during daytime television were quite interesting. Uh, you either had a like an injury lawyer that was, uh, that was offering services to, uh, to defend you or whatever. And then there was the Psychic Readers Network. And you would have people like uh, uh, Miss Cleo, the Jamaican, that would, that would read your, your future if you called her. Or Latoya Jackson, who happened to be Michael Jackson's sister, was part of the Psychic Network. And you could call and talk to Latoya Jackson and uh, get your future read. And um, they claimed that if you called this 1-900 number for only a small um, uh, amount per minute, then you would, you would have a glimpse into your future. But it turned out that the only thing that they were able to predict with some accuracy was that your phone bill was going to go up quite significantly when you called them. Uh, the Psychic Readers Network made its fortune by preying upon a weakness that we have as humans, the desire to know the future. But throughout Scripture, we are told that we are not to know anything about the future other than what God tells us. Psychics and mediums are regarded as wicked in Scripture, and consulting them is a sin. And so when the disciples marvel at the beauty around them, Jesus doesn't just tell them to hold on to this world with an open hand. He was also opening the door to events that they would soon experience. In saying, not one of these will be left upon another, in verse 2, all will be thrown down, Jesus 
is informing them that there is coming a day in which this beautiful temple that they see is going to be destroyed. And it would have been shocking to uh, Jesus' hearers at this point because the temple was, was the, the epicenter of the city. This is where the life happened. This is where it was believed that God himself dwelled. And if the temple is destroyed, then it's an indication that God had rejected his people. This is like the end of the world to them. And so in his statement, it is like Jesus is like dangling a carrot in front of them, and they unsurprisingly bite. In verses uh, 3 through 4, it says, While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? Now, notice two of the questions that are most pressing on their minds. When will this happen, and how will this happen? And it's totally understandable. Uh, think about uh, uh, the obsession that we have with knowing uh, end times. I mean, there's been so much ink spilled, and there have been so many groups that have said that they know the precise time and the hour and the day, only to be found wrong, but yet bring people into the grave with this idea that they think they can know what's going to happen. Now, we have the luxury of seeing the fulfillment of verse 2 from a historical perspective. We know that there was a Jewish revolt back in A.D. 66 in which some of the zealots uh, decided to rebel against Roman occupancy, and, uh, and it resulted in the, uh, the Roman Empire coming in and completely leveling the city of Jerusalem. The temple... Uh, the, the city itself. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but this future event for them would be the template now that Jesus uses for the rest of uh, his, his lesson. But to the disciples, Jesus really gives no answer to the, to the when and how. Instead, he provides them with something better. He provides them with instructions on how to live and encouragement concerning the events that were that were going to happen were actually good news for God's people. Look first at verse 5. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. You know, religious leadership is a, is a really uh, dangerous thing. You know, the Bible tells us that not many should desire to be teachers of the law because we are um, we're judged more, more strictly. There's a certain level of authority that comes with someone who makes religious claims, and Jesus here tells us to keep our eyes open. There are going to be people who want to deceive us into plausible-sounding arguments, and it, it happened in Jesus' day. It happens today. It will happen, uh, it'll happen tomorrow, and these charlatans are very good at taking uh, advantage of current events that are happening and twisting them into apocalyptic possibilities. Notice in verse 6 that Jesus says that some will claim to be a, uh, religious authorities. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am he. Don't be duped. Certainly not by people who claim to be the Messiah or the Christ, but also by sneaky ones. People who have built their ministries for years saying that every little current event that you see on the front page of the newspaper is the sign that the end is coming in the next two years. Well, friends, if we were to take them biblically, they would be false prophets. 
as they continue to have false prophecies interpreted over and over and over again. There is no secret codes in the Bible that pinpoint the events when Jesus is coming. So be wary of people who claim authority over special knowledge on these things. But further, Jesus warns us to not get too excited about common everyday events. Look in verse uh, 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it's not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So, Whenever there is a, a major event that happens, um, it is not uncommon for, for Christians to get really excited uh, about end times thing. Maybe they're anxious, maybe they're pensive. A major earthquake might happen out uh, in the South Pacific, or maybe a famine breaks out in Africa, or maybe uh, a war breaks out in Russia. I mean, for those of us that were around during 9-11, I mean, how many different theories did we hear about this being uh, this or that um, for future prophecy? And uh, Jesus here graciously reminds us to chill out a little bit. Don't overlook these things. Wars happen all the time. I'm 41 years old. I know that's, that's not very old, but there has not been a time in my life that there has not been a war somewhere. And some of you living today have been around a lot longer than I have, and you can say the exact same thing. There have always been wars. We can see that famines happen all the time. Earthquakes happen all the time. And so what does Jesus say to us? Don't be alarmed. This isn't the end. This is life in a fallen world. Don't use these events as a way of reading the tea leaves. We need to be ready, but as we'll see here in a moment, we don't need to be alarmed. Instead, he gives us a reason to hope. Look again in verse 8. These, uh, these events are the beginning of the birth pains. Now you're thinking, you're probably thinking, wow, um, I mean, that's a bit strange. That sounds horrible. That doesn't sound good at all. Why would you say that that's actually encouraging? But think about it. In, in obstetrics, what is the end goal of birth pains? It's the birth of a baby, right? And the birth of a baby is, is, is a wonderful thing. It is a, a, a wonderful thing for the conclusion of, of birth pains. Now, I've obviously never experienced what it's like to give birth to a child. But I know many of us have in here. And unless there is something mentally or spiritually wrong with the mother, what woman doesn't hold her newborn baby after the birth and say all of the pain and the struggle that I just went through was totally worth it? It's, it's just a natural thing that God has put into the, into the heart of, of a mother. And it's what Jesus is telling us. There are going to be some things that are going to happen in this world that are really, really uncomfortable and really unpleasant. But they are the beginning of the birth pains. Which means something great is coming. 
Something is coming that will be worth it all. When trials come, we open up our eyes and we remember that the best is yet to come. So we live with with open hands and we live with open eyes. And then third, we must also be on guard. We must be on guard. Financial guru Dave Ramsey has a famous statement that he says, uh, if you will live like no one else, you can live like no one else. And what he essentially means when he says uh, that is that if we can live frugally today, if we can be wise about our money today, there's, there's coming a day in the future in which we won't have to struggle with finances as, as some will who are not prepared. Far too many of us live in the present moment without any thought to a year from now five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, maybe even for some of us 30 or or 40 years. But being prepared is an essential part of of living, and many of us are neglecting that. And now in verses 9 through 20, Jesus gives his disciples some specifics about what is to come in their lifetime so that they can be ready. The uh, though the events that he describes are, are coming for the disciples, the idea of being prepared for you and me is still on the table. Now, one clue to knowing uh, that Jesus is talking specifically to the disciples here is in verse 9. Look what he says. He says, but you be on guard. Who's he talking to? The disciples. He's not saying the Christians in the future saying, you be on guard. Should we at Emmanuel be on guard? Absolutely. But by saying, but you, Jesus is specifically pointing at them. Now look at verses 9 through 11. Be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all the nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand about what you're to say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So these verses really, when when we look at them and we dissect them, are nothing but a commentary on the book of Acts. This is exactly what the disciples uh, struggled with. Um, You you think about the disciples that were subject to secular and Jewish court. Paul worked his way all the way up to the emperor in terms of of defending himself and, and, and the Christian faith. With maybe the exception of synagogues, what Jesus says here is lived out with our brothers and sisters throughout the world today in some of the most persecuted places in the world. All of this, Jesus says, is necessary. These are the birth pains. The gospel must go forth. And sometimes the gospel goes forth through the blood of the martyrs. And that can be scary But Jesus promises us that his sustaining grace will be given to us on that day. He will not only give you the grace of the words that you were to say, but he also gives us the grace to sustain us through the pain, the shame, and the confusion of everything that that accompanies suffering. He goes on to prepare them for the fractured relationships that will come with their association with him. Verses 12 and 13, he says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. 
Now, uh, you will be hated everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You know, the psychology of saving your own skin is, is really quite intriguing. Sin has affected us so much that if it came down to it, many of us would throw anyone under the bus to save our own skin. History has proven that. The amount of people who turned in friends, family, and neighbors to the Gestapo in World War II is absolutely staggering. We saw it even a couple of years ago in Canada when it came to COVID provisions. People calling the Royal Mounted Police because they see someone without a mask as they're so worried about it damaging them. Churches were closed down and, and raided. And Jesus is saying here that even when it comes to your relationships, enjoy them. But enjoy them with an open hand. And verses uh, 14, 14 through 18 are, are incredibly difficult here to understand. And I do believe that they're referring to what happened in AD 70. As I said before, the Romans came in and they squashed the Jewish rebellion uh, that had started in AD 66. And if you were to read the accounts of what it was like to be in Jerusalem when the Romans came in and sacked the city, you would be sick to your stomach. The Romans were brutal. There's stories of, of blood flowing through streets like rain would come down. Just utterly gruesome. And so now in verse 14, I don't pretend to know what the abomination and the desolation is. There, there's quite a number of interpretations that all seem plausible here, but I have to stick with something having to do with General Titus's destruction of the temple. And why would this not be an end-of-times prophecy? Because verses 15 through 16 seem to fit more historically with the event in the siege of Jerusalem than in Jesus' return. Jesus is telling him that when you see this stuff happening, get out of there. Don't take time to get your coat. Don't get your shoes. Just get out there. Get out and run. And if it were the end times, which would be so encompassing, you ain't got nowhere to run. But here, get out of the city. Pray it doesn't happen in winter. Running barefoot in snow isn't pleasant. And this warning was heeded. Very few Christians were left in the city when this happened. And this was one of the great catalysts for the gospel going forth into all the, uh, the world. These events may have happened, but we're still called to be on guard. We need to be ready, but we can, like the disciples, be ready in absolute confidence. Jesus has gone before us. He has given us the warning signs, and he has told us that we need not be afraid. His grace will be just as strong in us then as it was when we were first brought from darkness to light. So we need not be discouraged or dismayed. Christ has already won. And fourth and finally, very quickly, we need to be informed. We need to be informed. It's simply the summary of everything that Jesus has already taught here. But he gives them one more teachable moment. You can only open your eyes and your hands and, and go on guard only when Jesus is more important than anything else in the world to you. There are really strong forces 
in this world that are going to want you to recant your faith in Christ and to trust in other things. There will be some who will use really persuasive arguments to get you to believe a different gospel. You must be well-informed and grounded in who Jesus is, what he did, and what he will do based solely on his word to us. Look at the force with which Jesus addresses us in verse 23. And you must watch. Friends, this is not optional. This is be on your guard. The enemy isn't just coming. The enemy is already here. This isn't subject to mulling over whether you think this is true or not. This is something you must do. You must watch out. Be ready. I have told you everything in advance, Jesus tells us. So you open your hands. You open your eyes. You be on guard. And you be informed. If you take this to heart, then to be continued will never scare you. It will never frustrate you. You can look into the future absolutely fearless because you know that Jesus has not only prepared you for this, but he has given you the grace to thrive in life and death in this day and forevermore.